Hey, I wanted to read, from, read to you guys from one of our favorite Bible stories, uh, Bible story books. And uh, moms and dads and grandparents, I would really love to commend this book to you. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, it's a fabulous kid's Bible. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I think every Sunday school teacher should have it because it teaches you how to read the Bible from a Christ-centered perspective. And, and the subtitle of the book is, it's the Jesus Storybook Bible, Every Story Whispers His Name. Isn't that a beautiful way to talk about the scriptures, how they testify to Christ? And so we're going to talk about a couple things related to Christmas. There's a lot of symbolism. There's lights, there's plants, there's trees. And tonight when we do our Hanging of the Green service, <clears throat> we'll explain a little bit of that. And in just a second, I'm going to get somebody who's going to help me light one of those candles over there. So uh, do you like to play with fire? Okay, good. Great. <laughs> I know that. <clears throat> so you want to come help me light the candle here in just a second. Okay. And we'll give somebody else a chance to next week. But I wanted to read the first two stories out of uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, or two, two of the early stories that will deal with the sermon that we're talking about, how we find our hope in Jesus. There's a lot of people around the holidays that get really sad, and they get sad for a variety of reasons. They can't buy the stuff that they want to buy. Maybe their relationships with people are not the way that they want to be. And so Jesus gives us hope, and we're going to talk about that hope here in this Bible story. So can everybody see the picture? I am going to try to read upside down. I'm going to get so dizzy. You guys got to catch me, okay? That says this. In the beginning, there was nothing. Nothing to hear, nothing to feel, nothing to see, only emptiness and darkness and nothing but nothing. But God was there and God had a wonderful plan. I'll take this emptiness, God said, and I'll fill it up. And out of the darkness, I'm going to make a light. And out of nothing, I'm going to make everything. And like a mommy bird flutters her wings over her eggs to help her baby hatch, God hovered over the deep, silent darkness. He was making life happen. God spoke. That's all. And whatever he said, it happened. God said, hello, light. And light shone into the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. You're good, God said. And they were. Then God said, hello, sea. Hello, sky. And a great space opened up wide and deep and high. You're good, God said. And they were. Then God said, hello, land. And there, splashing up through the oceans, came cliffs, mountains, sandy beaches. You're good, God said, and they were. Hello, trees, God said. Hello, grass and flowers. And everything everywhere burst into life. He made buds, bud, shoots, shoot, flowers, flower. You're good, God said. And they were. Hello, stars, God said. Hello, sun. Hello, moon. And whizzing into the darkness came fiery globes spinning around and around, whirling orange and purple and golden planets. You're good, God said, and they were. Hello, birds, God said, and with a fluttering and flapping and chirping and singing, birds filled the skies. Hello, fish, God said, and with darting and dashing and wiggling and splashing, he filled the seas. You're good, God said, and they were. Then God said, hello, animals, and everyone came out to play. The earth was filled with noisy noises, growling and gobbling, and snapping and snorting and happy skerfuffling. You're good, God said, and they were. God saw all that he had made, and he loved them, and they were lovely because he loved them. But God saved the best for last. From the beginning, God had a shining dream in his heart. He would make people to share in his forever happiness. They would be his children, and the world would be their perfect home. So God breathed life into Adam and Eve. 
And when they opened their eyes, the very first thing they ever saw was God's face. And when God saw them, he was like a new dad. You look like me, he said. You're the most beautiful thing I've ever made. God loved them with all of his heart. And they were lovely because he loved them. And Adam and Eve joined in the song of the stars and the streams and the wind and the trees, the wonderful song of love to the one who made them. Their hearts were filled with happiness, and nothing ever made them sad or lonely or sick or afraid. God looked at everything he had made. Perfect, he said, and it was. But all the stars and the mountains and oceans and galaxies and everything were nothing compared to how much God loved his children. He would move heaven and earth to be near them always. Whatever happened, whatever it cost him, he would always love them. And so it was that the, uh, that the wonderful love story began. Now Adam and Eve lived happily together in their beautiful new home. And everything was perfect for a while. Until the day when everything went wrong. God had a horrible enemy. His name was Satan. And Satan had once been the most beautiful angel, but he didn't want to be just an angel. He wanted to be God. He grew proud and evil and full of hate. And God had to send him out of heaven. Satan was seething with anger and looking for a way to hurt God. He wanted to stop God's plan, stop his love story right there. So he disguised himself as a snake and he waited in the garden. Anybody like snakes? Yeah, me neither. Now God had given Adam and Eve only one rule. Don't eat the fruit on that tree, God told them. Because if you do, you'll think you know everything and you'll stop trusting me. And then death and sadness and tears will come. You see, God knew that if they ate the fruit, they would think they didn't need them. And they would try to make themselves happy without him. But God knew there was no such thing as happiness without him. And life without him wouldn't be life at all. As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat that nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly, she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, after all, and you'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked the fruit and ate some, and Adam ate some too, and a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love you. And it wasn't a dream, it was a nightmare. A dove flew from Adam's hand, a deer darted into a thicket. It was as if they were frightened by something. A chill was in the air. Something strange was happening. They had always been naked, but now they felt naked and wrong. And they didn't want anyone to see them, so they hid. Later that night, as God was taking his walk, he called to them, Children! Usually Adam and Eve loved to hear God's voice, and they would run to him. But this time they ran away from him and they hid in the shadows. Where are you, God called. Hiding, Adam said. We're afraid of you. Did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat, God asked them. Adam said, Eve made me do it. What have you done, God asked. Eve said, the serpent made me do it. And terrible pain came into God's heart. His children hadn't just broken the one rule. They had broken God's heart. They had broken their wonderful relationship with him. And now he knew everything else would break. God's creation would start to unravel and come undone and go wrong. And from now on, everything would die, even though it was all supposed to last forever. 
You see, sin had come into God's perfect world and it would never leave. God's children would always be running away from him and hiding in the dark. Their hearts would break now and never work properly again. God couldn't let his children live forever, not in such pain and not without him. There was only one way to protect them. You will have to leave the garden now, God told his children, with his eyes filling with tears. This is no longer your true home. It's not the place for you anymore. But before they left the garden, God made clothes for his children to cover them. He gently clothed them, and then he sent them away on a long, long journey out of the garden, out of their home. Well, in another story, it would be all over, and that would have been the end. But not in this story. God loved his children too much to let the story end there. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day he would get his children back. One day he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him. Lost children yearning for their home. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be this way. I will come and rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against that snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness you let in here. I am coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. Come, come with me here for a second. I'm going to have to help you with this, all right? You pull the trigger. You pull it. No, pull it. Pull it. Here, here, you put your finger on mine. I'll help you. All right, you stop. Let You, you watch Daddy do it. Oh, no. <laughs> there we go. And do you know why we light these candles? because Jesus is the light of the world. And we celebrate the hope that we have in him. Kids, let me pray for you, and then you can go back to your, your families. God, we pray that as we talk about the hope that we have in Christ, that this will be so much more than just a kid's story, that it will be the story of you, the story of the world, the story of reality as it most ultimately is. We pray that this Christmas season, as parents, as grandparents, as Sunday school teachers, RA and GA leaders, that we can help our kids to grasp just the grand beauty of who Jesus is and the magnificent plan that he had in redeeming us through his son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned to the little kids, <coughs> there's a lot of symbolism at Christmas. When we talk about the lights and the evergreen trees and things of that sort. And this morning, I want us to talk about the hope that we have I've, um, I've titled this series that we're going to be in for the next few weeks, um, Out of Darkness Light, because uh, even though we just had the opportunity to light this candle here, most of you, within about five minutes, will forget that there's a flame burning here because it's, it's completely insignificant in a room that's well lit. But come back tonight, when the sun starts to set and the lights are turned off, that one little light will cast a great glow. Uh, even that one little light will cast a great glow through this entire room. And so one of the things that happens when we talk about the symbolism, I want us to use this kind of darkness and light imagery over the next couple of weeks to talk about God's plan. Because as we'll see here today, God separated the light from the darkness, and he knew that it was good, and he created everything. And he created light, 
And actually, we get life from light. That's not just a theological statement, photosynthesis. You know, when you're sick, you get out in the sun's rays, you feel a little bit better. God made light to heal us, to give us life. But yet, as soon as the dawning of creation happened, it seems like these tremendous storm clouds moved in. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates this perfect, beautiful, light-lit-up place. And then by Genesis 3, it's almost like you can't see the sun anymore because the clouds have rolled in and there's this darkness that comes. And so I want to talk through this whole imagery of morning light, midday gloom, the sun rays breaking through and leading to a glorious, cloud-free sunrise. And so one of the things that we have to do to understand what the Bible has to say to us about how the world is put together is our very first point, that God establishes a good, plentiful, and pleasant place. That's what we just talked about with the kids. God establishes a good, plentiful, and pleasant place. Just as we were coming in and out, you know, people from the first service were heading out, people were coming in for the second service. I had a a grandmother say how wonderful it was to have everyone in her family around the table. That's just good. Doesn't happen enough, does it? You know, some of you maybe have family close by, and then you realize, hey, my family's right here, and we still don't get it together enough. For those of you that have family at a distance, what a what a rare and fleeting privilege it is just to have family, just to enjoy each other. When we talk about goodness, the, the plentifulness, you know, um, how many of you had more food on your table than you could ever possibly eat in two lifetimes? You know, we've already joked about, you know, these pants feel a little more snug here this morning. You know, my I can't quite get that top button buttoned because we have benefited from God's version of the horn of plenty, the cornucopia. God has been, been plentiful, and we've seen that even this week. Here's what I love about how, how God's goodness and his benevolence kind of works out. There's, a, uh, there's this really short passage that says that God causes his son, uh, causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know what that means? God is good to everybody, just not people who go to church on Sunday. The guy who sat around the Thanksgiving table and, and wanted to impress his guests with the choicest cuts of meat and the best that money could buy, who thinks that he has done everything by the sweat of his brow, God gave to him too. He just doesn't recognize it. He thinks it's all about him. And so God, in his common grace to all of humanity, gives good gifts to all people, whether they acknowledge him or not. Do you do the same? Think about this for a second. Have you ever given a gift to somebody that was ungrateful? You ever done that? You'll do it once. You get, you get somebody that's ungrateful, you go, well, huh. I think I'll find someone else to surprise and try to bless because they <laughs> didn't appreciate it. But God is good. He is plentiful in his goodness and he's pleasant. One of the things that I love about the holidays, I don't know how many of you have ever, have you ever... Um, really kind of thought about your tongue much. You know, I just lay awake at night and I just ponder my tongue. No! It's got to be one of the most insignificant, disgusting, gross pieces of your body and you never give it second thoughts except for Thanksgiving. And then you are really glad that God put that assemblage of taste buds in your mouth 
You know, everything, uh, and I'm sorry, all the vegetarians and vegans that may be in the room, God could make everything taste like tofu. Heavens, no. <laughs> he, made, he made strawberries to drip down your chin when they're ripe and full of juice. He gave, he gave apples that crunch. that If you're not even in the room, you know someone's bitten to an apple in the kitchen. He's the one that when you start to dig your fingernail under the skin of an orange and it begins to peel, that, that you smell the fragrance of it. He's the one that, that when you take that special collection of herbs and spices and you rub it on that steak and then you grill it just perfectly and you put it in your mouth, it's like your tongue has this 4th of July fireworks display of happiness. woo And now everybody wants to get out of church and go eat. <laughs> Listen, here's, here's one of the things. Like we, we don't need to be bashful about this. It is okay for us to enjoy God's goodness. You know, sometimes Christians get the idea that we're just a bunch of prudes on anything that is fun. No, we should be the ones with the most joy, the easiest smile, and the deepest satisfaction at enjoying the things that God has given us. James 1.17 says this, that every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God is light. And he's good light. There's not even any shadow in him. And as we look at the Bible passage that we read in the story to the kids this morning, I love the way God describes his own creation. You'll see a bunch of verses on the, um, the screen here in Genesis 1-4. It says that God created light and he saw that it was what's word, good. Genesis 1-10, God made the earth and he made the seas and he saw that it was good. Genesis 1-12, God started to make vegetation and he made trees and they bore fruit, and they, uh, they produced all kinds of things, and he saw that it was good. Genesis 1.18, he created the lights. He created the sun, the greater light to rule the day, the moon, a lesser light to rule the night, and he saw that it was good. Genesis 1.21, he created uh, the, all the scary stuff, the large sea creatures, and every living creature, and birds, and he saw that it was good. Genesis 1.25, he created all the wildlife, and all the livestock, and all the creepy crawlies. And he even said those were good. Genesis 1.31, the summary stand. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Evening came, and then morning, and it was the sixth day. He never made a mistake. I mean, how many of you can say everything you have put your hand to has been good? No way. You know, we flub it up regularly, you know? God did everything good. And so I love it. When we talk about this transition from the Thanksgiving holiday to the Christmas holiday, you know, we we don't have to be satisfied by such pedestrian appetites. We have much more significant things to be thankful for. And I love the comical way somebody said this. I'm going to read something to you about thankfulness for God's goodness. This was specifically written for um, Thanksgiving, but I, I just love the way he said it. He said, this Thanksgiving, I'm thankful And I'm thankful that there aren't twice as many congressmen and half as many doctors. I'm grateful that grass doesn't grow through snow, necessitating winter mowing as well as shoveling. Any of you that have lived up north, that's a hearty amen. I'm thankful that there are only 24 hours available each day for TV programming. (laughs) I'm grateful that civil servants aren't less civil. I'm thankful that teenagers ultimately will have children who will become teenagers. 
I'm thankful that I'm not a turkey. I'm thankful that houses still cost more than cars. I'm thankful that the space available for messages on t-shirts and bumper stickers is limited. I'm thankful that the liberated women whose husbands take them for granted don't all scream at the same time. I'm I'm glad that the snow covers unraked leaves. I'm thankful that hugs and kisses don't add weight and don't cause cancer. I'm thankful that record players and radios and TV sets and washers and mixers and lights can all be turned off, but that no one can turn off the moon or the stars. Are you thankful for God's goodness? It's a wonderful goodness. It is very easy sometimes to um, compare yourself with others and think that the goodness that God has shown to you is not as good as the goodness that he has shown to someone else. Do you ever get caught up in that cycle? It's not good. And the problem is, sometimes our perspective is very limited. We have, everybody has blinders on, you just don't see them. But we have this very narrow perspective where we can only see just a very little bit. I want to give you a website that I want to encourage you to go to. And, whoops, I want to encourage you to be brave, because when you go to this, Troy, I did it. I almost tripped over it last week. I, I, I kicked it good this time. You've got to be brave if you go to this website. It's called the Global Rich List. And it is Global Rich List. Dot com. And you go to it and you put, in, you put in whatever you think your measly salary is. And what it will do is it will compare you with every single person on the planet and what they make. And they'll let you see, based upon percentages, where you fit on the planet with your income. I'll give you a clue that even if you make minimum wage, you're in the top 4% of wage earners in the entire world. Because in Indonesia, you work in a factory and you get 25 cents a day. And I understand there's scales of economy. All you critics out there, they're going, well, you know, San Francisco is more expensive than Chicago. I get it. But listen, the point is for us to be thankful for what we have, not always focusing on what we don't have. So go there. Don't take my word for it. You go there. You plug in your information and, and let God just help you focus on what he's blessed you with already and allow it to change your perspective just a little bit. Here's the thing that, that's terrible, and it's something that we have to talk about because we don't like to talk about it. But regardless of all of this goodness, plenitude, pleasantness, all of this goodness that God has given to us, in spite of that, number two, we disobey His boundaries and establish ourselves as our own authority. I've said this before, and I'll, I'll say it again, because I think, I think we get hung up that sin is an action, like a specific thing. Like, I went to a bar Friday night, so I, I committed a sin. Sin is individual actions. Murder is a sin. Hate is a sin. But sin is a state of rebelling against God and His rule. So state is more a, a, sin is a condition that manifests itself in a bunch of different things. Because everybody makes a list of what is sin and what is not sin. And so whatever is sin that you don't want to call sin, you say, well, what he did is sin. What I said, it's just a, it's a mistake. It's a indiscretion. It was lack of judgment. No, it's sin. And so don't, don't get into the list sin. Get into the sin is rebelling against God. And that's what the Bible says that we do. You heard uh, from the children's story, Genesis uh, 3, 1 through 7. And we've got the scriptures on the passage. We're going we're gonna to skip through that because we read through uh, the children's Bible this morning. But they, 
Adam and Eve make a deliberate and conscious decision to listen to the voice of the serpent instead of to the voice of God. All of this goodness, all of this plenty and pleasantness, one rule. And that one rule caused them to think that God was holding out on them instead of enjoying all of the bounty that he had given them. And they saw that it looked good. They saw that it looked tasty. They saw that it would make them wise. And they took and they ate. And it's not just a children's fairy tale about a talking snake. The Bible's um, record on man's rebellion is much more rich than that. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, is the story about God decreeing judgment because his heart is so broken at man's wickedness. Listen to what the scriptures say. When the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every scheme of his his mind, every thought was nothing but evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And then the Lord said, I will wipe off from the face of the earth man whom I created together with the animals, creatures that crawl, birds of the sky. Does this sound like anything that we just read? Genesis 1, where God gives the list. He is undoing creation in his judgment. All, all the birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah however, found favor in the sight of the Lord. Now here's the issue. We didn't read chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. That's a really kind of confusing passage where you have um, these two groups of people. You have the sons of God, is what they're called, and you have the daughters of men. And so uh, there are some people that believe, you know, that these are like uh, demons that kind of married women and had children. The problem is demons are spirits and they don't procreate. Okay, so I don't I don't buy the more sci-fi kind of supernatural. I think when it says the sons of God, the daughters of men, I think that it's talking about the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain. And here's what happens. You have this godly line that is kind of untainted and, and, and living righteously. And you have Cain's progeny that is doing what Cain does best. And it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful they looked good, and they took them, and they had them. It's almost the exact same storyline is in the garden. They saw the apple. They saw that it looked good. They were desirous of it, and they took it to themselves. And so in both cases, you have an outside influence affecting godliness. You have Adam and Eve in an original pristine state, tempted by a serpent, and now they, they betray God, and they go with the voice of the serpent. Genesis 6, right before the flood, you have the godly line of Seth, the ungodly line of Cain, and these people go, man, those girls sure are pretty. And now this godly line is completely polluted. And ungodliness wins, and God says, the flood, it's coming. Exact same procession. We see this thing that's delightful to the eyes. It's a benefit to us, and we say, I want it, and we take it. We have to recognize this truth, is that when you drop a white glove in a puddle of mud, that puddle of mud does not turn all glovey. The glove turns all muddy. And while we may sit there and go, you know, this whole Adam and Eve thing, you know, I, I, I don't know that I would, I, I wouldn't, I don't even like apples. I wouldn't have picked the apple. Yes, you would have. 
Because the Bible says in your nature, you are a rebel against God and his rule. Maybe it wouldn't have been that day and that thing, but there would have been another way that you would have rebelled because it's in your heart. It's in your DNA. It's in your nature. And the Bible continues talking about man's rebellion of God's boundaries and wanting to establish themselves as their own authority. In Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, we see another uh, story. It says, At one time, the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary, and as people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let us make oven-fired bricks. And they had brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city in, ta- in a tower with its top in the sky. And let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Obviously, this is not a good thing, okay? And we don't readily know why it's a good thing. We'll get there in just a second. Let's continue in verse 7. God says, come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babylon, for there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Why is this so bad? Why was building this tower in the plain of Shinar so bad? Look at Genesis one twenty-eight. God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful, multiply. What's the third command? Fill the earth. Subdue it. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. The same command is given to Noah. It says that God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 11. They're filling the earth. They get to Shinar and they stop. And they say, you know what? We're not going to do it. Because we don't, we don't view what we're doing as filling the earth. We view it as being scattered. So God said, you have the choice to obey or I'll make you obey. And he came down and he uh, cursed them and changed their language and caused them to uh, spread out from this one place where they were congregated. Here's the real challenge of Genesis chapter 11. In both Genesis uh, uh, 3 and in uh, Genesis 6, there was, an outside, there was an outside influence to encourage godly people to be less godly. There was the serpent and there were these the daughters of men. By the time you get to Genesis 11, there's no outside influence, is there? They have learned to do bad all by themselves. They don't need a serpent anymore. They don't need tantalizing daughters of men. The bloodlines have been so intermixed that everything is just messed up from here on out. This is such a huge contrast from the beauty and the goodness and the pleasantness of everything that God made in the garden. And unless you think that this is just a, um, an Old Testament issue, you know, and I can't, uh, we're going to read an extended passage of Scripture, and I can't, uh, it's probably uh, PG-13, but it's God's Word. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 29. This is what God's Word says about man and his condition. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen 
since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made as a result, people are without excuse. This is what the Bible says. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were even further darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served something created instead of the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is why <clears throat> this is why God delivered them over to degrading passions for even their females exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The males in the same way also left natural relations with females and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice, gossips, and the list continues. And the Bible's testimony about what we have done to God's good creation continues in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. It says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Moms and dads, that means even your kid, even your honor roll student doesn't do good. He may get A's on his report card, but he is not good. Grandparents, that means that your grandkid that you love so much is not good. Not in the way the Bible describes pristine moral goodness. We're bad. And this can be summed up in a very brief and terse statement in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who's that all include? Everybody. Believers and unbelievers. Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals, black and white, Yankees and Southerners. Whatever distinction you have for dividing mankind up, it's everybody. It's not that you get to choose that, all right, my, my clan is good and everyone else is bad. The Bible's testimony is that everything, everyone is bad. And you just get the sense of this Beautiful morning dawning when God creates and God does this new work of creation and immediately you have Adam and Eve's sin, you have Cain killing Abel, you have the flood, you have Babylon and you just see cloud, storm front after storm front after storm front rolling in. It's like waking up in the morning and you know that you're supposed to be up but it's so dark outside that you don't, you, you think that your, your clock is wrong. You ever had that experience? because it's a stormy morning. And you know that the sun's out there somewhere, but you're not sure where. And the Bible says that because of our rebellion, there is a moral impurity to the world that we live in. The salt is no longer salty. We're not preserving the things that we need to preserve. We're no longer the city on the hill that God designed Adam and Eve to be. We're now only dark and useless, yoked to darkness. And as Jesus would say, worthy of only being trampled underfoot and you sit there and you go wow 
okay, we started off with like the fireworks in my mouth and now we're like moral darkness. You know, what a downer. This is the word of the Lord. Goodness, rebellion. And we fool ourselves to think that the darkness is not as dark as it really is. It's bad. And so we turn on our TVs and we hear about bombings in Paris and we hear about crazed gunmen in Colorado Springs killing a police officer here even this weekend. You sit and go, how messed up is this world? And now we're, we're, we're having a debate about what do we do with refugees because some of them are Christians and so we want to let the Christians in but we don't want to let the terrorists in and now what do we, what do, we do? How do, we, how do we deal with this? Our world is broken. We've kind of kicked God off the throne, put, put the crown on our own head. And the problem is we don't run our own life and we don't run the world well at all. We should all be fired from running our own life. You know, uh, you are not a good CEO of even your own stuff. Aren't you glad, though? This is not where the story stops. This is not where it stops. As bad as it is, as dark as it is, Third and final point, that despite, despite our disobedience, the hope, the hope of life with God lives on. You followed our analogy. It's like we've woken up on a very stormy morning. We know that the sun should be shining, and it's not. The sun is risen, and it immediately seems to start to fade because of the moral darkness of our age. We have contributed to it. We are not innocent. But even in the midst of these clouds kind of rolling in and and, and seeming to be all around us, there is, as the darkness closes in on us, this tiny pinprick of brilliance that shines through the clouds. And, And you'll find it in the most unlikely of places. In the very midst of Jesus cursing the serpent and Adam and Eve for their rebellion and their treachery against him and his good rule, He gives the hope of the gospel. He lays out the tiniest seed of his mysterious plan. And it's so beautiful and it's so perfect that it cuts through the darkest of clouds to give us this glimmer of hope that God will come back to rescue his people. It it shines brightly, but very briefly. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. This is the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. Which is a terrifying thing to think about that serpents had legs and could move faster than they do already. So um, that's free. What in the world was he doing before he had to crawl on his belly? Here's the point. I will put hostility between you and the woman. You see, now that they kind of have gotten in bed together, their fates and their futures are intertwined. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed, your children, your progeny, and her seed. He, some unnamed male descendant, he will strike your head. And instead of the and, it would probably be better to put a but there, but you will strike his heel. What's the point? All of the badness that we have just talked about in Genesis 3 and Genesis 6 
in Genesis 11, in Romans 1. If I was God, I think I would give up and I would start over. Just being honest. You know, what's the old statement? You know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. How many times are you willing to get burnt? God is not, at this point, he is not giving up on his creation. He's saying, listen, I'm going to give you a little, give you a little, little flashlight, psh, little, little gleam of light. It's going to take a while to get there, but one day there will be one who comes, who, yes, he gets bit on the heel. It's painful. But he will crush the head of the serpent. God will not give up on his creation, and neither will the serpent. He will strike at the very one who has come to kill him. But he won't win. The serpent will strike at the woman's offspring, but out of the women's offspring will come one who, despite his bruising, despite his apparent loss, shall once and for all crush the serpent's head, crush the serpent's scheming, and return God's creation to its original intent. A place of goodness, a place of plenitude, a place that is pleasant, where death, disobedience, and disorder look like they reign supreme now. Darkness seems to be victorious, but the reign is not forever, because after darkness, there's light. And today, if you are a believer, that is your testimony. The Bible says, and some were, and some such were you, liars and immoral and adulterers and this, that, and the other. But God caused the light of the gospel to shine into the darkness of your soul to enable you to see the beauty of Christ. The problem is in our churches, we can come to church all of our life and see Jesus as a little flannel graph image and never see him as the creator of the world and the redeemer of mankind. We've got to get beyond little baby Jesus. He's the omnipotent creator, the ever-loving redeemer. And he shines out of darkness so that we can see, and we can live, and we can enjoy God's goodness forever. And so this morning, if the Christmas story is a kid's story to you. My prayer is that this Christmas it won't be. That beyond the tinsel and the stars and the blinking Christmas lights and the neighbor with way too much stuff in his front yard, that you can see, you can cut through the clutter to what it truly means to know that God loves you know that he wants you to be in his family, that he empowers you to be his representative on earth. There's nothing that you have to do because you can't be good enough. That's what's so amazing about God's grace is it conquers everything. And so if you don't know the power of God's conquering grace, I don't know somebody, I don't know anyone in here that would not want that for you. That is the Christmas gift that we would give to everybody that we could, but we can't wrap it up. We can only tell it. And so if that's a conversation that needs to happen for you, please just know whatever needs to get done this week, that'll go on hold so that we can talk with you about what the true meaning of Christmas is and how the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ can shine, in a, can be a reality in your life in a way that maybe it has never existed before.
questions, please. God, we pray that you give us the humility to admit that we need a Savior. And uh, it, it, keep us from a moralism that says, if we do this and we do this and we do this, then you'll like us. God, we have just seen the testimony from your word. We are bad. Born bad, we do bad, we think bad, we want bad. We're so bad that even in our goodness, we try to make ourselves look better than other bad people. And so God, help us to come face to face with our sin. And in that moment of darkness, may we see the light of your gospel that you have done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that by simply placing our trust in Christ, you give us a new start. More than that, you give us a new life where we get to enjoy you both now and forever. And so, Lord, we pray for that. We pray that you give us a deeper appreciation for those of us that have already trusted you. We pray that you bring a powerful conviction for those of us that uh, maybe are not living the way that our Creator would want us to. So, God, do your work among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 